Uh, we are in Romans chapter 9. We uh, are, are in this amazing book of Romans, and, uh, and it has led us well down the pathway of understanding salvation. And today, I was trying to think of a way to kind of set up where we are in Romans, and the, the thing that most accurately portrays something that we're talking about that I, that I could think of in the culture is, uh, and, and I hate doing this to you, but I'm a dude that likes sports, so you're going to get some sports analogies um, from time to time. That's okay. Uh, the NBA, the, the National Basketball Association, is currently in a lockout. And for those of you who follow the NBA very closely at all, you have seen this coming actually for a couple of years now. They knew it was coming. It, there was all kinds of problems, and then there were all these negotiations for months and months trying to find uh, an end to what was a what was going to be a lockout if there was not an agreement um, between basically the owners and the players. And, and I couldn't even give you all the details and great accuracy of what's going on. But essentially, there are two sides. And you can just, you can correlate this to some situation in your life because we've all experienced this uh, a hundred, a thousand times in our lives, where there's basically two power structures. There's, there's two people that have a will. And there are the owners, who uh, are people who are very, very rich, which is why you can own an NBA basketball team. You're so rich that you're paying uh, you know, some players millions and millions of dollars for one year of play. And then they give them multi-year contracts, and they have multiple players on the team. And they have all the, you know, the costs of having a team, of having your own you know, arena where you can play the game and, and all of that. And, and then you try to go watch the Bulls and you pay out your ear trying to just get in the door. Uh, as someone who has kids who are interested in going to pro sporting events, I know what it costs to go to these events and, and it can get very, very costly, especially when, you know, basketball is one of those games where there's, there's a limitation. Football, you can get bigger. You can go to college football games, there'll be 110,000 people there. I mean, just a crazy amount. You go to a basketball game and it's gonna be much smaller. Of course, there's more of them, but anyway, Regardless of all the details, there's, this, there's this, this argument. And the argument is between two uh, groups of people who have a certain kind of power. And they have a certain thing to lose. And so they're both using their power to try to influence the other so that when they finally come to an agreement, they feel like they're, they're not saying, hey, we just want everything to be equal. You know, we want, we want all of us just to be happy. We, they're, they're each trying to get the most for themselves. Some of the owners are losing money, and that's a bad deal for the owners. And so the owners are at work trying to not lose money uh, because they're not, they, maybe they don't have a large fan base or, or for whatever reason they're just unable to make back the money that they're spending on these basketball teams. And then you have players, and the players want to make a lot of money. If you didn't know, the lifespan of a professional basketball player is not that long. And, and you know, by the time you're in your uh, mid-30s, you are an old man and, you know, ready, ready to retire. And if you make it much longer than that, you're one of the rare uh, guys out there and you're going to end up, you know, making your money because you're good enough to have stayed around and to continue to be healthy enough to play for a long time. But regardless of all of those things, both sides, players and owners, are at odds. 
And there was, a, 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 in the last couple of weeks, there's been this murmuring going on, this kind of whisper that it looks like they're close. It looks like there's going to be disagreement. It looks like it's going to happen. And as they both kind of push each other back and forth, just a little bit, hoping to find that point where they'll both agree, this is the cut. We'll cut it 50-50 or 49-51 or, or, or whatever it is with the, with the revenue. We're going to find that point and we're going to be happy and then we're going to get back to playing basketball. And then all of a sudden the bottom just dropped out. And now it looks like the basketball season could be done. And you look at it from the perspective of uh, a true fan and you start saying, not just do I not get to see the games, and, you know, the TV show, The Big Bang Theory, just gets all kinds of revenue checks because now they get extra time on TBS because there's no basketball. Um, some of you nerdy people know what I'm talking about, Big Bang Theory. Um, and so, so there's, there's now, like, all this free time for sports fans who are going, wait a second, I'm used to watching basketball, right? I'm, 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 I'm ready to watch, and now it's, it's all going away. And then you start thinking, if, if the lifespan of a basketball player is so short... To just pull a year out of that, it take the Chicago Bulls. Who, who's in here a Bulls fan? Okay, the rest of you can leave now. Um, just joking. Um, no, I'm not joking. Go. Uh, <coughs> if, if you if you are a uh, if you are a Bulls fan, um, you know. And if you're not a Bulls fan, you might know. Derrick Rose is a great young player in the NBA. And when we talk about the great players and we think about their seasons and the stuff they accomplished, the things they did. And then you take the Bulls last year who had uh, a really good year and, uh, you know, can build upon that and, and, you know, can maybe make it all the way to the NBA Finals and, and win this thing with a young guy, a young leader like that. And then you say, in his prime, now we could just take away a year. I mean, imagine just at your job, all of a sudden just a year vanishes. You're, you're not going to work. You're not going to get paid. And, you know, I don't know how you're going to make money. Good luck, you know. So this power struggle is going on, and there's two sides who are trying to each get for themselves what they feel like is needed or, or wanted, and they're trying to, to have some agreements so they can finally play basketball, but they're not coming to an agreement. So the owners are losing money because nobody's coming into the arenas to watch the game. The players are not getting any money because there's no games to be played. Now the players, and the, well for months, the players have been talking about going and playing in Europe. You know, where basketball is just, it's not quite the same. But there's other leagues out there, and they can, at least, they can at least stay healthy and keep playing, you know, at least stay prepared for when they do come back. And so it's two sides with powers and agendas. And the whole reason I, I bring up this thing that's happening in sports world right now is because I think that's how we treat God. I think that we treat God as if we have some level, oh yeah, he's God and we're his creation and so there's differences, but we have some level of bartering with God, some level of working out our agenda with God. And I'm not just saying that because I, I, I want to try to be clever and say, oh, it's just like this. and It's, it's not just like the NBA, but I think, that it's, I think that it's similar enough that what Paul talks about at the end of Romans 9 and into Romans 10 what Paul talks about, that story, that thing that's happening in our culture, is a lot more real in our relationship with God than any of us would want to admit. So let's look at Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 30. I'll start reading to you. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. 
but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is God's word. So he starts with, what shall we say then? And, and Paul, this is his... This is his writing technique is to continue to kind of go down the road of what is the next logical thought what is the next logical question as he's writing to this church that he's never visited but is longing to visit and he's giving them this uh, this amazing treatise I'm, i wonder if what paul was intending when he started writing this letter as he as he really sits down and goes okay i'm, I'm going to write to this church and i'm going to try to encourage them and i'm going to try to help them understand God and his son and the gospel, I wonder if he realized or if he just started down that road and he just kept on going. You ever done that? I was uh, sitting in Starbucks yesterday and, and, and finishing up my sermon and kind of just reviewing some things and organizing some things and, and somebody uh, saw that I was reading the Bible and uh, so I had my headphones in because I was really trying to concentrate and get things done and get back home. And, uh, and then all of a sudden they were like, oh, what you reading? And I was like, well, it's got gold pages. And, you know, it's either, uh, you know, collector's edition of Moby Dick or it's the Bible. So um, I'm, I'm joking. I, I'm, I'm not trying to make fun of anybody. But, uh, you know, it's like, what are, you, what are you doing? And so I'm preparing a sermon. And then all of a sudden they pull out the chair and sit down and just start a going, right? And just, woo, and here we go. And 20 minutes later, you know, I have said narrow word. And it just kept on going and going. And it's, I mean, it, it was great and all that for what it was but um you know it's it, it's this continuing ongoing like this conversation sort of jumps in the way and i'm trying to find my way out of it i'm trying to work my way through it and i couldn't work my way through it and i'm not even really sure why i brought that up but the, the point the point is this paul paul is bringing this message to this church and he is sitting down and writing and he's going maybe on and on and just kind of continuing but he has authority to do so Right? Sometimes people in Starbucks need to realize they don't have the authority to do so. All right, here we go. <clears throat> and I, I, don't, I honestly, I don't say that in a mean way. I really don't. What shall we say then? Paul, continuing the argument, continuing the discussion. It, it, it going all the way through Romans 9, as he talks about, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. There's the power of God to salvation, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek or to the Gentile. And then he begins to talk about how everybody is under sin. Everyone is a sinner. No one seeks God. Everyone's hostile to God. But God breaks into the world. And he brings not only the promise of salvation and, and the kind of thing that leads Abraham to faith in Romans chapter 4, but he also then now brings about the fulfillment of that promise through Christ so that all who now see Christ and his death on the cross as what God has provided in order to save us, to take away our sin, and then to clothe us in the righteousness of Christ as God gives him what we deserve and gives us what we don't deserve, we then can have salvation. 
So Paul, having gone through all of this, and then last week, especially in, in the first 29 verses of chapter 9, as Paul is talking about Israel and is talking about how, how upset he really is that Israel has now been cut off from Christ. That Christ has come, but Israel as a nation has essentially rejected him. And he wishes that he could somehow give his own life in order that they might know Christ. And then he gives these difficult words that we dealt with last week. Where it talks about God's sovereign choice. Where God, without taking into account our works, our deeds, chooses some who he will love. And some whom he will hate. Some whom he'll have mercy upon and some in whom he won't. It is God's great and sovereign work of salvation. And then right when we're going to go, wait a second, that seems unjust of God. It seems like that's bad of God to do that. It doesn't seem like a good biblical view. He says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Has not the potter the right over the clay? That he could take one lump and make something for honorable use and another lump and make it for dishonorable use? Is not God able to do that? Not that God is the author of sin, but that God can create creatures who will choose on their own to sin and then give them exactly what they, what we deserve. So this is God's sovereign work. And Paul finishes up the section that we looked at last week by saying, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. This is how God works. And so we say, what shall we say then? What shall we say? What happens? What's going on with Israel? What's going on with God's chosen people and now uh, a number of them have been cut off because they have not trusted Christ. What shall we say then? And Paul says that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. And, and any Jew who heard Paul say this would go, that's the understatement of the year. Really? They haven't pursued it? The Gentiles? Are you sure? I mean, it is for, for a Jew to see a Gentile and the way they live their life and the, and, and the things that they believe and the actions that they take and the values that they have and to say they've achieved righteousness, somehow they're righteous, to a Jew that is just unheard. I mean, that's when you grab your ears and run out of the room screaming so nobody can say anything else. It, it would be completely frustrating. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, duh, I, I, just obvious. So, so, I mean, we can see that as an understatement, but the Gentiles, they did not pursue it. They did not want it. They were not looking for it. They were not like, how can I be the most moral person? They had just all this junk in their lives. And to understand where the Gentiles are, you basically need to think of, uh, think of a place in which Christianity is so suppressed or where the gospel has not been heard. And what direction do people go? I mean, they'll just... They're just all over the place. It's whoever has the gun is the one who's going to win, right? It's whoever has the, the fist. It's, it's whoever has the power or the place. We think about a place like Libya, right? And you start going, 
what, what a terrible, the more we learn about what's happened that we did not know as it's uncovered now that Gaddafi is gone, that we, just incredible kinds of um, injustice that is happening. What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? How do you, how do you get something that you don't pursue? How many of you teach your children, if you want to achieve great things in life, do nothing? Raise your hand. Right. Who's teaching that? Yeah, you teach that to your children, Shane? Okay, I believe you. Because you don't have any children. I mean, it's, it's an absurd kind of statement. You can, righteousness means doing right things, right? It is, it is to be right. To, to be doing good. And so, to say the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it is just bizarre. They didn't pursue it. How could you attain something you didn't pursue? How many of you have a PhD that you did not pursue? Anyone? I'm not talking about an honorary PhD. You're still stupid. You just have a piece of paper. You know, it's, it's, that's why it's honorary PhD. You don't get positions because you have a PhD that's honorary. It's it's a it's a recognition. It's a it's a trophy. You know, it's a smile. That's what an honorary degree is. Not that I don't want one. Anybody who's listening to this audio years later. Um, <clears throat> nobody in this room has typically something that they have not pursued. That doesn't mean something can't fall into their lap or that somebody can't come and say, hey, you know, there's this thing. But in some sense, in some, in, in some fashion, you have pursued it. You have looked for a job. You have looked for, a, you know, a degree. You have looked for a relationship. You, and then through those things, through those avenues, that network, maybe something has come that you did not specifically see out there and pursue, but still... Out of all the things that we could have in the world, is there anything greater than to be righteous before a holy God? Is there anything that could be considered of more value? That's nothing. I mean, to try to even compare something with it, right? And yesterday, the, the world was a flutter because college football teams couldn't win games they were supposed to win. Everybody's freaking out and panicking. And I'm not a big college football fan. I mean, I like to watch it, but I, I don't like have, you know, this, I don't sit down and watch it on Saturdays and just love it. And, and I've got all these friends who are from the South, which is just, you know, first red flag. You know, just, you're from the South. There's problems there. And, and then, the, you know, it's, it's roll tide and, you know, boomer sooner and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it's just it's all, this, all this talk, all this chatter out there. I'm getting, I'm just hearing all these things from my friends about these football games, and now my team can win because somebody else lost. Yeah, congratulations. That's a great way forward. But there's, there's, all, there's all this kind of focus on this sport in which, I can't make every illustration sports. I'll, I'll get to something. We'll talk about ballet here in a second, ladies, okay? Here we, I'll, I'll figure it out. And, and so they've got all these guys that are trying to achieve, and every game, you know, can tip the balance in one way or another. But then there's these ratings, and there's this BCS thing, and then there's this championship game, and, and so everybody's trying to figure out how to balance it out because they're pursuing this the goal. They're trying to get to this end, and and 
it's like the NBA in which these powers are working their own agendas against each other and hoping that somehow they'll meet in the middle so that they can play basketball and everybody can get paid. And fighting, they're not finding their way to the end. They can't agree to terms. The Gentiles just cut a deal. And they were never in the negotiation. (laughs) Do you see what I'm saying? The Gentiles just reached a deal with God. And they weren't in the negotiation. It, It wasn't something they were pursuing. They weren't entrepreneurs who were trying to build a great business and make a lot of money. They weren't somebody who was out there going, okay, we're going to find God, but we're going to find a way to do it without believing in the same stuff the Jews believe. Because we don't like those Jewish people, and we don't like their God, we don't like their you know, Old Testament stuff. We're going to find God some other way. There was none of that. Paul says that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. And then he says, that is a righteousness that is by faith. And that's how they've attained it. It has come to them. And, and this, is, this is why we believe so strongly in the preaching of the gospel. Is The gospel is something that you announce. It is not something that you wait for somebody to pursue from you. Hear me now. Because this is where a lot of Christians are. I'll just kind of live a good life. I'll I'll kind of show people my good works, and then they'll all want to know everything. Now, there's an aspect of that that is absolutely true, and that does happen. Paul talks about it. Jesus talks about it. Peter talks about it. When people ask for the reason for the hope that you have, when they see that you're living with hope, that you're living for another world, that you're not depending on money, that you're not depending on the stuff of this world, when you're looking to something else, then they go, "What what is your hope in? What are you depending on? That absolutely is true and can happen. But at its core, Christianity is a proclaiming faith. It is a gospel faith, which means that it is something that has to be announced. To say gospel without thinking in terms of a megaphone shouting to the world that this is the good news is to misunderstand everything about the New Testament. And and really, in lots of ways, everything about all of Scripture In that God's word is always proclaimed. God doesn't come and argue his point. He comes and states it. And we as Christians are to be the ones who have the gospel. And we look at the world around us that is dead. And we say we must announce it. And so it's it's like when I was telling you about how you you and your life haven't achieved anything without having pursued it. Some of you went, but I did have this thing that kind of fell into my lap. You guys, some of you thought about that. Some of you thought... But wait, there was, there was that thing. I wasn't looking for it. All of a sudden, it just showed up. It was just there. That, that thing, that rare thing that happens is the, the picture of what we have here. That without pursuing it, somebody else pursued you. Without saying, I need something, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put out feelers, I'm going to throw out some resumes, or I'm going to put out whatever. Without doing that, it has come to you. And you've achieved, you've gained something without having tried to go and get it. There is that hint, that rare thing that does happen and has happened probably for all of us at some point in our lives. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. Now listen up and we'll we'll get there. But that Israel who pursued 
a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in revealing that law. Now, we've got to get the balance here. We've got to get both sides so we understand why Paul's saying what he's saying. The Gentiles achieved something they didn't try to achieve. The Jews tried their best to achieve it, I mean, really hard. Nobody could look at the Jews of the time of Christ, the New Testament times. Nobody could look at the Jews and say, there's a bunch of lazy people, at least in terms of the leaders and the serious, you know, people, religiously speaking. When, when you would see a Jew, you would see someone who was all out, full bore, radical people, this crazy, you know, the, we, we, we talk about, um, I... I do something religiously. You don't mean I'm lazy. You mean I keep it by the clock. I'm there, I'm there, I'm doing it, I'm doing it, I'm doing it. I never miss a Sunday. I never miss a Bible study. I never miss a prayer meeting. I never miss a mass. I never miss a whatever. I'm, I'm always there. I'm, I, when I do something religiously, it means I do it. You're not thought of as a religious person if you never show up to church, but you say that you believe in God and Christ or in some other whatever. A religious person is one who is devout, one who's devoted, one who continues to do, 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 do. The Jews were doers. They pursued. And the law gave them something to do. When God says, do this and don't do this, the Jews said, all right, let's go. This is how we'll achieve the pleasure of God, is we'll go and we'll do. But Paul says they pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, but did not succeed. It's not because they were not doing this stuff really, really well. It's because they were taking what God gave that did not lead to righteousness, but rather led to a conviction of sin. And they used it as the means to achieve it. Let me just say it again so you make, make it clear. The law was never, ever, ever meant by God to be there for you to go, okay, these are the things I do to make God happy. The law is meant for you to go, whoa, how often do I fail? How often do I fail? And for all of you who know God's understanding of, and we'll just put it, as right and wrong, not the religious things, but even just basic morality, all of you know that it is absolutely impossible to keep. Jesus makes that really clear when he says, you know, you've, you've heard it said that you're not to murder, but what you're really not supposed to do is be angry. And everybody's like, no, wait. No, come on now. I mean, we know it's murder. I've read the Ten Commandments, Right? I've seen the stone tablets and put my fingers into the Hebrew letters. I mean, it, it doesn't, it, it is, it is a problem to say that you know the law and you miss the heart of the law, which is to know God. The law isn't meant to lead us to God by us achieving something. We're not climbing Jacob's ladder. The law is meant to show you what's wrong with you, that you can't keep it. And what the Jews would do is they would make the law achievable by, by creating the law sort of in their own way, in their own pattern. So they would take what the Bible says, but they would add their stipulations to what that means. 
So when you cannot work on the Sabbath, they would actually tell you you can only take so many steps. The Bible doesn't tell you that. But the Jews would determine those things. They would say, this is what it means. So the Gentiles didn't pursue it at all. And boom, it's there. And they receive it. They have it by faith. The Jews take the law. They have God's word and they say, all right, here we go. We're going to keep this and then God will be happy with us. And they didn't realize that was never what God intended. And so because that's what they thought would lead them to righteousness, they failed. Paul says they did not succeed in reaching that law. 32. Why? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. There is no difference between people who become believers in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. There is no difference. Just hear me very clearly. There's no difference. You've been taught, some of you, that there is a difference. In the Old Testament, you became a believer by following the law of the New Testament. It's by grace. That is an absolute farce. Wherever you have heard that, stop listening to those people, turn off that radio station or TV station, or stop reading those books. That is not what the Bible teaches us. What the Bible teaches us is always by faith. Why does Paul go back to Abraham in Romans 4? Why does he go back to Abraham? To show it's always been by faith. Always. And so here, he makes it extremely clear. Why did the Jews fail by trying to keep the law to achieve righteousness, and the Gentiles succeed when they didn't even try? Because they did not pursue it by faith. The Jews did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. All right, so you're a Jew. Um, you're a God-fearing Old Testament, or they would say Torah or the law. You're someone who loves the law and who is striving hard for righteousness by keeping the law. And the better you keep this list of rules, the better you are as a person. And hopefully one day I'll, just, I'll be somebody who's blameless before God because I've kept all the rules. And so you're really, really working hard. You're trying to be accepted that way. And it says back in Isaiah, which Paul quotes here, that what God does is he takes a big rock and just throws it right at the feet of the Jews. That's going to cause them to stumble. I love watching cop shows, like real life cop shows, right? Where, uh, in fact, they have uh, like several of them now. Once bad boys, bad boys, what you're going to do? Once that gets famous, then everybody starts making their own cop shows. And now there's Campus PD and America's most shocking car chases and America's most shocking, you know, convenience store heists and whatever. And, and so there's all these shows on. And, and I always like it when there's like this chase. I mean, I don't like it when somebody's running from the police and putting people's lives in danger. But then some cop will be sitting on the side of the road and he's got this strip and the car comes by and he goes and throws it and it just boom, pops all the tires. And then it's riding along on its discs, right? And it's sparking all along and slides off into the disc, into the ditch. And then they go chasing him. And, you know, I, I, I like that. And that's basically what God does to the Jews is he says, you're running you're racing, you're going, you're pursuing, you're thinking that this is the direction, and here's what I'm going to do. And he slides this stumbling stone right in their way, and they fall on their face. The law all along was made, was given so that you would fall on your face. That was always the point. But now, 
because the Jews have taken the law and made it into their own thing, and they think that it's, it's showing them standing in righteousness, God puts the cross out there with Christ on it, and the Jews, boom, get nailed by it. And the reason that God does that is so, and it's the second half here, as we look at uh, verse 33, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Any of you ever been in a race before, like a real race, like a road race, a bike race, a car race, a something race? Scott Vetter's been in races before, right? Is there, is there anything like having a crowd around you, and you're doing great, and all of a sudden you just do something stupid? You step in that hole, you fall on your face, my cousin, uh, nephew, sorry, my, uh, my brother's son, Joshua, is, uh, he got 29th in state in cross country. And that's pretty good considering he's a sophomore. Um, that's really good. Uh, he runs like a five-minute mile, which makes me want to punch him in the face, right? Because that's really fast. And, uh, and he's a very good runner. At their home course in our hometown, He's running and he takes a wrong turn and he was way ahead of everybody else and he ends up, I don't remember what place he came in, but he ended up, because he, he literally ran a mile in the wrong direction and realized that he was in the middle of nowhere and that wasn't the, that wasn't the race course. It was the home, the home track, okay? Now it's, it's cross country, so it's outdoors. It's in, it's in, it's actually in, in a wooded area um, near my hometown, but he just took the wrong turn. And here he goes off, and he's gone a whole other direction. When he crossed the finish line finally, guess how proud he was of his achievement. Guess how much he wanted to talk to everybody about it. They wrote an article in the newspaper about it. Whoa, that doesn't feel good, right? <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that's not what you want people to write. And of course, it was, you know, he, he tried to take it in stride. He's a great runner. Everybody knows it. It was just, it was one of those, you know, dumb little mistakes that you can make and that lots of people make and that we've all made. It's stumbling where you just get embarrassed and you're ashamed. God wants to bring the right kind of shame so that whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And the other thing God does with Christ is not only... The, the stumbling here is, is something that we can see in both a negative and a positive light. I think it's intended to show it in a more negative light. In other words, you're trying to achieve righteousness in this way. I'm going to make you fall on your face. But the other thing that can happen positively is that can make you fall on your face in worship. Right? And so the, the, the stone of stumbling, the rock of offense can either offend us and then we're mad, which is what most of the Jews did, which is why they're cut off and why Paul's going to say what he says at the beginning of Romans chapter 10, or it can be the thing that leads us to believe. It leads us to faith. It leads us to love God. Because the cross undermines all self-righteousness. It, it, the, Jesus trips you up so that as you're trying in your, your, in your own goals of getting righteousness through the law, as you're doing it, the cross stops you. 
and you're covered in mud because you tripped over this thing and, and now you're scraped up and scarred up and, you've, and you're embarrassed because these people have seen it happen to you. It is those who believe. It is faith, not works, by which we will be removed from this shame. And the shame can either lead you to continue to pursue self-righteousness and hate Christ, which is why he was crucified. It's not because he was threatening to go and actually take the throne. It's because he was threatening to take away the throne of everybody else. And so this, this is what God does, not only to judge the Jews, but also, hopefully, to lead all to faith, to belief in Christ, as he puts Christ out as the stumbling stone. And then Paul says this in chapter 10, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. It, going, going right back to the beginning of chapter 9, I'm speaking the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off for Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises, to them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who over who who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And so he has this great anguish because he knows what their fate is without Christ, if they do not believe in Christ, because along with all these other great things, the glory and the promises, the word, the law, the you know, the patriarchs, then comes Christ. He's the next in line. And so if you either you either believe in the next in line or he becomes a stone of offense that you trip over. So brothers, he says in chapter 10, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Now, how many people have seen the response of the Jews to Jesus, seen the response of the Israelites and the Jewish leaders in the crucifixion of Christ? How many in history have taken that fact and they have responded negatively in a horrific way toward the Jews? Many, right? Anybody heard of the Holocaust, right? This, this is a problem, but look at what Paul says. He doesn't say, they've messed it up, so let's hate these people. He says, my heart's desire, my prayer to God for them is they may be saved. It's not hatred. But it's desire for them to understand the correct roles of the law and of the gospel. The correct roles of the law for righteousness rather than faith for righteousness. So he wants them to be saved for, verse 2, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And I, I, we have to pause here. Paul, when we talk about Paul's resume, you guys have heard of Paul's resume before, right? All the things that he can lay out in front of you to say, here's why I'm so great. Let's see if I can find it here. Philippians chapter 3. If anyone thinks, this is uh, the middle of verse 4, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, meaning great zeal. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. 
exactly what we're talking about, right? But whatever gain I had, I had counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. The word there can actually be uh, a bit of a swear word. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. It doesn't depend on law, it doesn't depend on works, it doesn't depend on what you do. Here's what Paul says. When, when you do things in order to be received by God, it, it's rubbish. It's worthless. It's nothing. Do you, do you see what he's saying there? In other words, what you do before God is do-do. That is actually the word rubbish there, Okay. I'm, I'm not joking. That's actually what he's saying. What you do before... That's so why we talk about righteousness as filthy rags. We talk about in the Old Testament. And, um, what we do gets us nowhere. It's what he has done by which we stand alone. And so the problem with the Jews is they have a zeal for God. Now, we might stop it there and go, but, but shouldn't we say sincerity is a, is a part of the deal? At least they're doing that right. At least, they, I mean, they could just be, you know, apathetic Gentiles who just love sin and go after it. At least the Jews have the law and have zeal. Is Paul saying, well, there's at least that? No, he says, for I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And because of that, he says, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. In other words, God has a kind of righteousness that comes by faith. And, God has a, and we have a kind of righteousness that comes by works. And we will never really achieve true righteousness. Therefore, we ignore the fact that this is God's righteousness. We think God's righteousness is ours. What we, what we achieve. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, meaning how it's achieved by faith, and seeking to establish their own by saying, I'm not going to do it by faith, I'm going to do it by works. They did not submit to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law. In other words, all the goal of the law has been finished in Christ. It's done. And while we might say, well, I'm not looking at the Old Testament law, I'm just thinking that God's going to receive me because I'm good and moral and I do the right things. I can't tell you how many people, I, you know, that's, that, they always come out with the scales. Somehow it always comes out. I think I have more good works than bad works. I think I'm a pretty good person. There is never anywhere, any place in the Bible that even hints that that's the way we measure anything. That's the way God measures anything. The way God measures everything is this. Every one of us is a sinner. All of us deserve hell. God saves some. We proclaim the gospel to all, trying to find the elect of God, hoping that they will believe knowing that if, they, if God works in their hearts, that they will believe. The goal of the law has been found in Christ. For Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. The law, you stumble and go, I, I can't do it, because of here's the cross showing that God did it, and therefore we put our faith, we put our belief 
in God through his son Christ. And we say in Christ and what Christ has done, everything has been taken care of. And the fact is, if, if you want what you deserve, you'll get it. If you want what you deserve, you'll get it. It's justice, judgment, and condemnation. That's what you deserve, and you'll get it if that's what you want. But right in the middle of all of your stuff, whether it's trying to achieve your own self-righteousness or whether it's just being a, a pagan, somebody who just goes and does what they want to do, it, whether it's trying to achieve or trying not to achieve, both ways are the pathway to judgment. The one pathway to God is by faith. And so either it's going to be the person who does good works and, and who thinks they believe in God who's going to then stumble over the cross and say, but there's nothing I can do. Christ does it all. It's that person who puts faith in Christ finally. And that, may, that person may be somebody who goes to church their entire life, has been grown up as a Christian, has memorized half the Bible and just loves you know, the Bible and loves old hymns and loves new songs and loves just whatever. I've got some new radio station I listen to. I listen to only Christian music. I do all this religious stuff. All of that will send you straight to hell without faith in Christ alone. And so what we do is we say, if we want what we deserve, we'll get it. But if we know that we don't deserve it, we'll put our faith in Christ because that's all we can do. That's all that can happen. That's all, that's all we can hope for. There is nothing to develop righteousness in us apart from realizing there's no way to develop righteousness in us. The only way you'll actually grow more righteous is by realizing how unrighteous you are and how much you're putting your faith in Christ, that it's completely on Him. I talked at the beginning about the NBA and this lockout and how these two sides have power and agendas. And, and the problem with religious people is they think they can barter with God for how they will be accepted. They think that they can describe and define, and they'll use some of the scriptures to try to help to define that, but they won't take them all because they'll miss exactly what Christ has said, done, and achieved. We are not two sides of power trying to agree to terms. Either we come on God's terms or we are completely locked out. Either we come on God's terms by faith in Christ alone repenting of our sins, trusting fully in Him, or the lockout will last forever. Pray with me. We're going to sing. We're way over time. Jerry can head on up, and uh, we're just going to close in song uh, here in a moment. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. It is powerful. It is good. Your righteousness is beautiful. Your, your love for us, your mercy toward us is magnificent. You, you have received us when we have not even pursued you, you have pursued us. And God, we can say how good you are. You are truly good. You are truly loving. And even today, even this morning as a pastor, I can try to find my acceptance in you by whether or not I feel like I've conveyed your word. And everyone can try to find their acceptance in you by thinking about how many times they said or thought the word amen during the sermon, or how many, how many times they, 
nodded their head or how many times they felt, oh, that's true, or how many times they said, I, I love God and I want God, or how many times they said, I'm, it's good that I'm here at church. I could have stayed at home and been lazy. None of these things, God, none of these things are why you accept us or receive us. It is Christ alone. Thank you for Christ. May we sing his praises now. In Jesus' name, amen.